Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, welcome to uh, New Books in Psychoanalysis. This is Christopher Bandini. Uh, I'm going to be speaking today to Dan Shaw, uh, who is the author of uh, Traumatic Narcissism. Uh, Dan Shaw is a psychoanalyst and uh, a trained psychoanalyst and psychotherapist uh, working in New York City. He currently serves on the faculty of the Westchester Center for the Study of Psychoanalysis and Psychotherapy and at the National Institute for the Psychotherapies as a teacher and supervisor of psychoanalytic candidates and was co-chair of the Continuing Education Committee of the International Association for Relational Psychoanalysis and Psychotherapy, uh, also uh, IR for short, uh, for several for several years. His book, uh, Traumatic Narcissism, Relational Systems of Subjugation, was published in 2014 by Rutledge for Relational Perspective Series, and we're going to be uh, speaking to him today about that book. So uh, welcome, Dan Shaw. Thank you, Chris. Uh, uh, what we usually do, Dan, is uh, is we speak about the. Uh, uh, we ask you uh, what led you to write this book. Well, a couple of things. Uh, I've been writing on the theme of uh, narcissism for a while. <coughs> Excuse me, but mainly in um, in a couple of papers that a couple of book reviews that were in contemporary psychoanalysis. And in a paper that was published in uh, Psychoanalytic Dialogues called Enter Ghosts. Um, what led me to write the book was that um, I was talking to uh, Lou Aaron, the editor of the Relational Perspective series, about my paper and about his anthology of relational papers. And I was wondering uh, where the, a place for it might be, uh, the Interghost paper. And he was saying, well, we, we might not have an anthology out for a while, but you could go ahead and write a book. <laughs> and I was taken aback. I was at first saying, I don't think so. But I quickly realized what an amazing opportunity that would be. Lou Aaron had been familiar with my writing from a, a group writing um class that he had uh, held privately that I was in. So I took all my old papers and I uh, put together an outline that would include some of the material from those writings and some new material, and uh, Rutledge agreed, and off we went. Now, what, uh, what inspired me to be interested in this topic from the get-go was a, a long, uh, more than a decade-long experience I had as a full-time worker in a religious organization, which I later eventually came to see as cultic, as authoritarian and abusive. And I became very interested in uh, the, charismatic, the charismatic leaders of groups like this and the followers, people like myself and the many others that I knew. And um, it's really from that experience that I began to be interested in the topic. It pretty quickly became clear to me that I was looking at narcissism. Mm -hmm. Now, I'll just say a little more about this because I don't want to spend the whole talk on this one question. But um, uh, specifically what I, what I came to feel was that I wasn't satisfied with the psychoanalytic uh, explanations of narcissism because I felt they were very broad and they often seemed to talk about an innate character problem. And I saw narcissism as most relevant to a relationship in which a, 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 a particularly narcissistic person would uh, be controlling and dominating of, and subjugating of another person. And, and, you know, Alice Miller wrote about this in Drama of the Gifted Child, about the narcissist parent and the child of the narcissistic parent. Um, I saw the, that relationship as uh, a, a slightly different way of thinking about narcissism as a relational system. 
in which one person allowed themselves to be subjugated by a person who desired and needed to subjugate others. So that that all flowed from my cult experience. It also flowed from working with people who uh, whose parents were extremely narcissistic and looking at them as adult children of, of these kinds of narcissists, learning about their struggles and their problems. And uh, that, that was really the uh, inspiration, those, those different things. Yes, I think that's something that's so unique about the book is the uh, is this take on it. It's, it almost turns it totally around on its head from the conventional ways of looking at narcissism, almost like, as you were saying, this characterological or kind of internal process, but rather that it's this uh, relational process and that the uh, this need for authority, this need for subjugation is really a, a very vital component to the, to both the person who I guess already is the narcissist and the development uh, in the, in the young person or the child uh, of narcissism. That's right. Exactly. That there is really a subjugator and a subjugated one and that they form a system. And that's what I wanted to try to really elaborate in the book uh, in different contexts, you know, first as a parent child developmental situation uh, but then later in um, married couples or partners, in um, in teacher-student relationships, in therapist-patient relationships, and in um, group relationships as well. So, so I wanted to try to capture the essence of this dynamic, this subjugator-subjugated dynamic. Maybe it would be interesting to go into some of the examples of, um, you know, how it how it occurs, say, in a parent-child relationship, as a, a versus um, a therapist-patient relationship. What are the similarities? Sure. What are some of the differences? Okay. Well, uh, developmentally, uh, so let's say um, let's say we can identify. You know, usually we're we're talking to patients and. Um, we hear about parents, and if we're listening carefully enough, we'll hear whether or not this parent was good enough, sane enough, or whether the parent really suffered from a, a significant personality disorder. And when the parent uh, is, uh, you know, somebody who sounds very much like the classic narcissist, it's important to for me then at least to start to think about the impact of that behavior on the developing child and what i what i um i think most of us are familiar with that concept and we 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 recognize the idea of a narcissistic parent um who who essentially doesn't want to validate or recognize the separate subjectivity of their child and the child is conditionally loved on the basis of how well the child accommodates to the narcissistic parent. Okay, so I think, I think that's not an unfamiliar concept for most therapists. Um, the, uh, the way I see that emerging o over time in, uh, in the whole of development for the child is, is in several ways. The, the, uh, the parent, the essence of the narcissistic relationship in this case in development is that the parent needs to always feel in control and in some ways is always feeling threatened by the possibility of another uh, being separate. Okay, so the, the narcissist parent is a profoundly dependent person who wants to disavow and deny their dependence. Now, a child is born completely dependent, right, and, and has no choice but to be dependent. What the narcissist parent wants unknowingly, unconsciously, is uh, for the child to feel unusually dependent to the extent that um, the parent will have total control over the child. The, the, and this parent does not want to see the child develop and uh, differentiate and individuate. Because 
that means that the child gains independence and and uh, gains a sense of their own subjectivity and their own separate validity as a person. The narcissist parent doesn't can't tolerate that and wants the child to to understand. Uh, you know, I've called it. I've called this kind of parent. Uh, based on Fairburn's work, a person who employs the complementary moral defense. So let me explain that for a little bit. You know, we know about Fairburn's idea of the moral defense, uh, where in, wherein the child of a bad parent takes on the burden of the badness and feels himself to be bad so as to preserve a fantasy of a good parent, because that's a more secure situation than for the child to feel innocent and and recognize they have a bad parent. When you're completely dependent and you're not the guilty one, the parent is, what do you do? You have no place to go with that. So if you make yourself bad, you, employing what Fairburn termed the moral defense, and you, you can preserve the parent as good, and you can have some hope that you could find a way not to be bad so that the parent will love you. Okay. Now, this this parent, in my view, is employing a complementary moral defense. In other words, that parent is claiming all the goodness and uh, and disavowing any badness. So the child is taking the burden of all the badness on itself. The parent is taking all the goodness. It's a complementary situation. The goodness of the child. The goodness of uh, the moral goodness, not just the goodness of the child, but the, the yes, the, the parent is saying all your goodness comes from me. And if you don't acknowledge that, that's that's your badness. But just the moral goodness, the, the parent believes in their own perfection. The narcissist is a is a person who is always viewing themselves as superior and perfect, including in a righteous way. Uh, they're, they're, so they're right, and if something's wrong, it's the other person who's wrong. This is the nature of any personality disorder. The personality disordered person believes in the absolute rightness of their own way of being, and if something's wrong, it's the other person who's wrong. So, so the, the parent takes all the goodness unto himself, I'm always right, I'm always good. When there's a problem, it's because you're bad. And this, the parent, in other words, coerces the child into, uh, 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 into employing the moral defense that Fairburn describes. So that's a little bit of a different take on Fairburn's idea. I just think it, mm-hmm. it fills it out. It, 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 uh, it, 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 it talks about both sides of, of that of that relationship. So, so the narcissist parent has claimed all the goodness, all the rightness, all the righteousness. Anything that's wrong is the child's fault. And what the narcissist parent can't bear is the child's separate subjectivity. The narcissist parent wants to be in control of the reality. And if the child's reality differs, the narcissist parent invalidates the child's reality. So the child learns, as Winnicott said, to accommodate, or as Bernard Branchap says, to pathologically accommodate to the parent. But it's the parent that's pathological here. That's my point. And there are pathological parents. Some people get upset. Why are we bashing parents? Well, some parents are extremely abusive and, and destructive, not not merely through violence or uh, sexual acting out, but through um, invalidating and non-recognition of the child's separate subjectivity. That's an act of violence in my view. And so this child has a choice when they grow up. Not really a choice. They, they tend to go into one of two directions. One, um, they refuse to accept the badness. At least they uh, consciously say, no, I'm not the bad one. And, and in defending themselves in that way, kind of like a manic defense, they can become 
the the next traumatizing narcissist. They will then yeah. want to subjugate others. The other way the child can go is to accept the subjugation and to accept all the badness and to live a life of depressive guilt. Um, and and uh, and to feel essentially that they, you know, that no matter how they may try to be good, they always end up unworthy and bad. So, so some of our patients who are children of traumatizing narcissists, I think most of the patients we see who have had these parents are those depressive ones who, uh, who at, at their core cannot hold on to any faith in themselves as good. And um, that's, that's the way that they have been traumatized by the narcissist. So that's a, that's an attempt at uh, a simplified version of the developmental piece of of this theory. Uh, Yes, and do you think, how much of it do you think is conscious on the part of the parent and how much is is a kind of an unconscious I think that the parent in this case, as with all the personality disorders, essentially uh, has a delusional perception of themselves as perfect, as righteous, as correct. And this is what, this is really why, for me, the concept of the personality disorder, which many of us feel is pathologizing uh, and therefore try not to think about, I'm afraid that it's a very good concept when you're thinking about abusive, uh, people who are abusive, um, because some of those people might be psychopaths and they may consciously feel that they're entitled to um, criminal behavior or behavior. But uh, next in line are the narcissists and and the others, and they believe in their own righteousness. They believe that everything they're doing is for is for the, the, the moral right and that when they're cruel, it's because that's what's morally right. When they're... Um, when they're um, abusive, when they're um, belittling or humiliating or intimidating, that's because that's the moral, morally correct way to treat the other person. The other, they, they, they truly believe that. And in my view, it's a delusion. It's a delusion of omnipotence. And, uh, you know, this is something we do read about from Winnicott and from Jessica Benjamin's uh, work especially that right you bring up the do or done yes, too and, exactly and that uh the you know that there is a problem with not being not having um not having uh, matured in a way that allows omnipotence to um to to fade into a sense of having one's own power if if it doesn't if it doesn't mature in that way and it and it remains, omnipotence is a pathological, I think, a delusion, and it means then that I have the right to for my subjectivity to be the only valid one, and anybody who questions it is a bad person. I'm thinking how much it also sounds like um, uh, Eric Fromm's concepts of authoritarian. Ism and kind of and and the escape from freedom and somebody's uh, <laughs> submission, right? Also, to use Manny Gent's surrender submission in yes. the sense that the, that the that the the person in the in the in the powerless position gives up their power to someone who is uh, who is a uh, right righteous or uh, or kind of all knowing yes. or kind of puts out this uh, kind of I guess I guess in a sense a charisma too. Is Absolutely, I'm very influenced by Eric Fromm's work, and I, I cite it quite a bit in the book. Um, I think Eric Fromm really uh, did uh, work very hard at understanding what he termed malignant narcissism, and he saw it at the nationalism level and at the individual level, and uh, he wrote about both. I'm very influenced by that. The reason I I do think that kind of narcissism is malignant in that it it uh, it try it attempts to control and 
um, and destroy the independent subjectivity of another or of others by by um, a system of subjugation. But he also did, as you say, describe the um, the propensity, the human propensity to regress to a place of idealiz- idealization and and um, and dependence in which you long to give over all your power to an all-powerful leader who represents strength and power and, and goodness. And if you follow that leader, then you, that may be a way, by giving up your freedom and following that leader, that may be a way to lose the sense of not being good enough or to lose a sense of impotence. Certainly, this is what Fromm thought was going on for the German people in the way that they followed Hitler. Um, you know, it's a joke kind of on the Internet that sooner or later every discussion references Hitler. So I hate to be, you know, part of yes. the joke. But, but certainly this was Fromm's concern as a Jew and as a European to, you know, to watch in horror that a whole nation could subjugate themselves to an insane, delusional leader. Now, they didn't think he was insane or delusional, nor did Hitler think so. They thought that they were absolutely the master race. The highest possible choices were being made, the most uh, righteous, the most, you know, uh, Robert J. Lifton uh, wrote a book called um, Destroying the World to Save It, about the uh, Japanese guru, Om Shinrikyo. But... um, the same applied in Nazi Germany. This is this was the plan. We're going to destroy this one race so that this master race can rightfully take its place and the world can be purified. But this is also, by the way, what happened in uh, in the uh, in chapter three of my book. I I write about a psychotherapy cult that was quite notorious in New York for many years. Yes, the Sullivan the Sullivanians. Uh, the, the people who ran the Sullivan Institute, which I always am careful to say in no way was or is connected to the White Institute. Even though Sullivan was at the White Institute, this was a complete a split off uh, non-related institute run in the city as a communal, as a, as a psychotherapy commune. And um, it was run along the same lines as, as this, as Fromm described, uh, you know, very successful, well-educated people took orders from their therapists and the therapists took orders from the top therapists and the orders were very specific about how to live, what to wear, where to go, who to sleep with. And basically the, uh, the commands were to sleep with as many different people as possible. How to be a parent, which meant give your children away to somebody else to raise because you're going to destroy them and create uh, a neurotic uh, uh, child if you try to be their parent. So small children were sent off to boarding schools or given to other people in the commune to, to be raised and separate from their parents. I mean, the, the degree of control of the leaders was extraordinary. And the degree of sexual boundary violations and other ethical violations was extraordinary. And this was all happening in New York City in the 70, 60s, 70s, 80s. It finally died off in the 90s when the main leaders died. Um, but it's a perfect example of the relational system of the traumatizing narcissist in this case in a in a large group yeah well i think this idea of the traumatizing narcissist is so so central because the uh, the after effects of being uh involved in this kind of what i'll call a narcissistic yes. dyad for one of a good. better term uh is kind of a is left leaves so much in its wake in terms of the trauma that and that's continuing, I think you speak to this in the book in terms of dissociation. Exactly, as well. it is uh, like any other kind of relational trauma. The uh, the the outcome is always um, you know a good a, a tremendous degree of dissociation. Now, uh, even even more 
to be more specific about what what the trauma for the follower is, for me, it's the abdication or the or the um, really the um, they they have to abdicate their own subjectivity. They have to disclaim and and um, and even um, despise their own subjectivity uh, and replace it with the with the by being the person that they are commanded to be by the narcissist. Now the narcissist, if the narcissist were, um, I suppose, a saint, perhaps, I maybe that would be helpful to people who followed. They would uh, perhaps find the, uh, themselves in deep ways and be themselves. But the, the narcissist doesn't want other people to be themselves. The narcissist wants them to be subjugated to him or her. The narcissist wants them to um, live in such a way that the only thing they concern themselves with is whether or not they are pleasing the narcissist. And um, to live that way, to abdicate your own subjectivity, uh, may, may feel as though it's voluntary. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, people who work with domestic violence or with abused children have seen that abused, battered wives or abused children very frequently feel like the last thing they want to do is leave the abuser. Um, they feel like they're there voluntarily. They feel like the abuse isn't so bad. They'll minimize it. They'll they'll claim the abuse is really their fault. And this is an, this is another example of what I would call the uh, traumatizing narcissist relational system. Um, absolutely. Uh, so so the trauma is both the loss of one's own subjectivity, one's own sense of oneself as a separate, valid person, and the, the, uh, the loss of the ability to have intersubjective relationships, by which I mean relationships in which both persons are allowed to exist as uh, separate, valid subjects, and one person isn't being made the object of the other. Um, again, this is this is very based in Jessica Benjamin's work, as as, I, as best as I understand it, and um, you know, in which she describes the relationship of do or done to, the um, the breakdown of intersubjectivity, and that is what that that breakdown of intersubjective relatedness, and being made to live a life in which you always. Uh, have to see yourself as below the other, the other person. That's 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 traumatic. And you and we see patients who. We, there's another aspect to this, which I also uh, would credit uh, Sheldon Bach for um, really elaborating in his work, and also some, uh, Lou Aaron in certain papers. Um, you know where we see people who seem to not be able to feel themselves as as a fully subjective being. They seem to mm -hmm. see to yeah. themselves as the object of others. And I try to give some examples of this in the book of adult children of traumatizing narcissists um, who, uh, for example, go out on a date and the only concern they have is uh, how to make the other person feel good and like them. They are unable to identify whether or not they actually like that person because they're just viewing themselves as serving as an object for the other person so that the other person is supposed to, they're supposed to figure out what does that person want to hear and what do they want to think and how do they want to feel and how do I deliver that. They don't think about what I want and what I feel and what I'm, what I believe. Yes, you, you have some wonderful examples in the book about how you work with the, uh, I guess, the development of this subjectivity. 
and and also your use of yourself in in bringing this about and how and some rad, uh, some very uh, dramatic uh, transformation. Yeah, well, the part of the uh, there's been some uh, some successful work there for sure, and there are also times when I have been uh, you know very uh, disappointed and not being able to allow. For example, I'm gonna I'll start with an example of disappointment that that I use in the book. A woman uh, who came to see me, a young woman who was living with her boyfriend, who was a very uh, strong, big uh, cop and very dominating. And she was a very tiny, petite woman and very um, submissive. And um, when she came to see me, she could barely speak without crying and choking on her tears. And... um, it seemed as though uh, anything she tried to say her, to her boyfriend always led her to start to cry and start to, uh, you know, be unable to speak. And um, I began to try to um, help her with her fear and work with her on what it was she was trying to say and and giving her ideas about how she could try to, uh, you know, bring out her thoughts and feelings more clearly and engage in a dialogue rather than, you know, always collapsing in a kind of resignation to letting the other person have their way. So um, that seemed to be developing as we worked together, but then we got, we ran into a hitch. Um, She was describing growing up with parents who were very punitive very moralistic, very religious, and very punitive of what they saw as immoral behavior, which usually was, um, you know, the kid not being respectful or polite enough. And um, Mm -hmm. she and her sister would be sat down on a piano bench, the parents uh, seated at a table before them. They would be asked to say what they did wrong and spell it out in detail. And then if it were a lesser offense, they would be made to hold a bar of soap in their mouth. And then she told me that when it was a more serious offense and the parents were angrier, they were made to hold liquid soap in their mouths. So I I was aghast at this. I was aghast. I I didn't want to give too much away, but I couldn't help it. And I I at some point said, um, you know, is that something you think you might... I said, do you think that was abusive? And she seemed to be defending the parents. And I said, well, do you think it's something you would do to your own child? She said, maybe I would. So I was a little taken aback. And I, I, you know, we were toward the end of a session there. And uh, we ended. And uh, I later heard from her uh, by email that all of a sudden there was too much going on at work and she would not be able to return. And I made many efforts to reach out to her and try to speak with her about that and email and so on and uh, to no avail. And um, my feeling was that the, the, um, the indoctrination she had received into the authoritarian uh, way of, of being where, you know, um, somebody is stronger and more right and somebody else submits, that that was just a paradigm that wasn't going to shift so easily for her. And certainly she was going to leave me before she was going to leave the dominating boyfriend or before she was going to recognize the parent's behavior as, as in any way abusive. So that was an example of a disappointment in the work. But you know there are there are good examples as well that I'm, I'm, I'm that are very gratifying clearly because it really is like um, you know it's a very difficult transformation to make if you've been used to being I like Brian Chap's phrase pathologically accommodating all your life so that you almost can't even know your own desire or your own and, and certainly don't feel like you have your own agency because everything is dependent on the other. Um, you know, it's very difficult to imagine another way of being. And, um, you know, so I'll, I'll, I'll talk to somebody and I'll say, well, what was that like for you when you were with your family? 
And they'll say, well, my wife thought it was really this and that. And I'll say, oh, that's what your wife thought. I was wondering what you thought. Well, I think we felt it was so and so. In other words, that person doesn't feel somehow uh, in touch with their own internal experience. And, and the experience is, is articulated only through uh, someone else's, uh, you know, framework. So, so I'll note that, for example, is one of the things that'll happen. I'll say, you know, you seem not to be able to feel comfortable just to say, well, I feel such and such. And sometimes I'll hear, I, well, um, I guess I don't know what I feel. Um, you know, or, or did you like that girl you dated? Well, I think she liked me, will be the answer. I say, yeah, but did you like her? <laughs> and, um, you know, I'll say, wow, it's like you don't know how you feel. All you can, all you can focus on, it seems, is what they might be feeling. And that, and little by little, we'll begin to talk about the ways in which, you know, this is a, a kind of self-objectification. And very typically, we'll find in the background, uh, developmentally, a very narcissistic parent who, whose, whose control of the subjectivity was so great that it was the only, the only subjectivity exists in the other person, and, and that patient before me only knows himself as, as the object of the other. Now, I, I don't know if that gets into the kinds of, of examples you were mentioning. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, well, I think it, it just what struck me as I was reading the book was how how different that seems than the uh, the, the more typical sense of narcissism that we have, where someone yes. feels so entitled, or uh, you know, well, that the rules don't apply to them. In a sense, that almost like an intense self involvement, almost like that it feels like they know so much what they want to the exclusion. Well, exactly. Of but anyway. that person might be. A, the traumatizing narcissist, the one who gets into a relationship in which they traumatize the other person by subjugating them, by stripping them of their subjectivity, and by, um, you know, dominating and controlling the subjectivity in the relationship. So, so yes, that narcissist, that grandiose, inflated, um, entitled narcissist is by all means potentially the traumatizing narcissist. The distinction I make here is this, that not all grandiose inflated narcissists remain fixed in that position. Many people like that will flip-flop between inflation and deflation. And when we say pathological narcissist, we're often talking about that person whose grandiosity is kind of undergirded with a whole lot of insecurity and whose insecurity is undergirded by a whole lot of grandiosity that that more or less defines in an oversimplified way what we call the pathological narcissist why i call someone a traumatizing narcissist is that they remain almost entirely in the inflated position and they do so by developing relationships in which they can deflate the other so their inflation depends on their ability to keep others deflated. And um, those people who get into those relationships as the subjugated ones are very much like Fromm's people um, looking to, um, to, to do, find the antidote to a sense of powerlessness to a sense of weakness. This is why um, um, cults prey on uh, college students. College students are at a transitional point in their lives between childhood and adulthood. Many of them are uh, anxious about the future, are uncertain about the future. Many of them are, are um, questioning, you know, how will they stand up in the world and compete against Others in the you know in the in the in the world and the in the job market and so on, and they're vulnerable. They're vulnerable about who they are, and 
cults are very successful on college campuses because they get people right at that transitional place where they're searching for something. They're, they're, they're looking for an ideal. They're looking for mentors. They're looking for, you know, guidance. Maybe uh, they, they haven't felt that they get it as strongly as they would have liked in their families. Well, the cults walk in and provide it, and they're very seductive and very successful. Um, but individuals can behave in the same way. I, I, um, I'm seeing somebody um, who I'll work hard at disguising, uh, but who would not be known. This is not somebody in the profession, certainly. Um, who was in a coffee shop and started chatting with a guy, and the guy um, claimed to be a shaman, and that and claimed to have uh, led several other followers to enlightenment. He was a musician. He was just a regular guy in a coffee shop, but this uh, woman became completely enthralled to him, and allowed him to be behaved to her in extremely abusive ways, uh, physically violent and sexually abusive, for a period of nine months before she absolutely cut herself off. And the aftermath for her has been, uh, you know, incredible uh, episodes of dissociation, panic, tremendous amount of panic, anxiety, and... Um, you know, we're working through all of that, but this is just a person, one person, um, you know, seducing and recruiting one other person into this system of subjugation. This is actually among people who uh, work in the field of cults as experts in uh, helping people with post-cult trauma. We, we're seeing this more and more these days, these one-on-one -on -one situations of some Stengali-like person just mesmerizing another person. And then that mesmerized person eventually breaks loose and uh, is astonished that they would have allowed themselves to be subjugated in that way. Um, it's very common now. It is. I've actually, as you were talking, I realized I've had uh, several uh, patients myself in similar situations. Uh, one person uh, was working in a store and some fellow came in and uh, and next thing you know, she's living with, with him and uh, two other people or whatever in this house. And uh, she had to break away from it. But it was almost like um, uh, hypnotic or, you know, so seductive. She couldn't, uh, she almost had no. Yeah. No, uh, and I've been talking to moment. more than one person who has been in a large corporation where a senior uh, a supervisor or executive gains control over a group of employees and creates a kind of a separate, like, um, harem, uh, basically, uh, as a mentor and a spiritual guide and a guru to these other employees. Um, I've heard about this in, um, in, in some of the big companies and big industries. And uh, I've heard about it for years because I've been working in this area for more than 20 years now. But uh, it seems to be even more common than ever now, this situation of the one-on-one -on -one, um, cultic dynamic, which basically is the relational system of the traumatizing narcissist. Well, maybe in the time that we have left, we can kind of segue naturally into what that means for in our profession and maybe in institutes or training, if you have any thoughts about uh, right. those particular well, settings. Well, I did want to, uh, you know, when I spoke about the Sullivan Institute in the book, I wanted to be clear that um, the problem of uh, controlling a narcissistic therapist has been with us all along since the beginning. Certainly, it was a problem at, uh, in Freud's time. Um, you know, uh, many people feel that Freud himself was more narcissistic than was good for him and that he was unable to tolerate the separate uh, development and maturation of his disciples. As soon as they differed from him in any way, they tended to get uh, exiled and excommunicated. Um but, you know, uh, violating therapists are studied very, very well by Andrea Salenza and Glenn Gabbard and others. 
And um, I've worked with many people who come in and told me about a previous therapy in which they were profoundly controlled in a very microscopic way by the therapist. Um, uh, some really hor horrific tales where the therapist believes that um, they're so brilliant and so righteous that they have no uh, boundaries that need to be respected and no ethical uh, norms that they need to consider because they're completely above that. And they're able to um, really um, financially and sexually and emotionally control uh, sometimes large groups of patients. Um, there's quite a few situations like that in our profession as we speak, and um, they go largely unnoticed. Um, well, I was thinking of the examples of um, uh, Eugene Land. I think it was Eugene Landy who worked with um, uh, uh, Brian yes. Wilson, and also the, in the in the yes. film uh, uh, "Some Kind of Monster." where the uh, therapist moved in, you know, and, and how we're kind of enthralled by it at the same time repulsed, you know, that there, there's an interest. Yes, in it's true. That is a, that is a character uh, also running with scissors, uh, uh, portrayed a, a character like that. And that, and there've been many others uh, in films and, um, you know, uh, so there's that. And then there's the training situation where candidates are supervised. And I, I, I devoted a chapter to that situation um, you know, taking the risk of uh, sounding, uh, you know, giving some examples in my own training of what I felt was narcissistic behavior on the part of supervisors. And it's, and it's not that this hasn't been um, thought about or talked about, but the truth is the literature focuses a lot more on the narcissism of candidates than it does on the narcissism of supervisors or training analysts. Which I think, yeah, which I think is unfortunate, Interesting, right? <laughs> because candidates are in a situation where, if they're not happy with the training analyst or with the supervisor, it's the power dynamic is such that the the candidate can easily be labeled too narcissistic, and and be uh, you know be coerced basically into accepting that there's the, the only pathology is theirs. And the truth is that supervisors and uh, training analysts can be narcissistic as much as anybody else. Um, and uh, I think everybody who's been around long enough pretty much knows that. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll put it that way. Um, <laughs> however, there's a difference. I want to I wanna, um, talk about a slight difference between somebody who's just sort of narcissistic and somebody who's a traumatizing narcissist. So maybe the best way I can talk about that is in terms of um, of an organization that has a goal in mind. Let's say somebody's running an organization that's meant to, uh, I don't know, raise money for, um, um, you know, feeding the homeless. Okay. Well, um, somebody could set up that kind of an organization. Actually, uh, an organization was developed by Werner Erhard back in the 70s called uh, that meant that was said supposed to end world hunger and um, you know so somebody could set up that organization and that could be the goal and in one case the person could be a very charismatic and narcissistic leader and a lot of money could be raised and a lot could be spent on feeding the homeless in another example, the narcissistic, charismatic leader could set up that organization and most of the money would be spent on him, not on the stated goal of the organization. So being narcissistic or charismatic isn't necessarily meaning, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to subjugate other people entirely uh, for your own benefit. Um, you know, you can be um, quite a quite quite a narcissistic person, but actually, you know, um, not you know actually run a group that that actually achieves its goals. It's when the only real goal is the self-aggrandizement of the leader that that's when you're looking at a traumatizing narcissist. Um, 
Right. Yes, there is there is healthy narcissism. Uh, absolutely. Look, I, I, have, I, I, I suddenly had the chance to write a book, and uh, it's easy enough for me to sit there thinking I'm too stupid for anybody to want to read what I have to say. It's easy to go there. It's easy to say this isn't going to be good enough. I'm going to get, you know. On the other hand, it's a lot, a little more difficult for me, but I had to do it to say, I'm going to say what I want to say. I'm going to say it how I want to say it. I'm going to actually be real about what's true for me. I'm going to write it out. And I'm going to put it out there, and maybe somebody will be interested. And, um, you know, that was me having to pull my narcissism together <laughs> enough to be able to feel like I could write a book that would be worth reading. Otherwise, what's the point of writing it, right? So, yes, um, you know, that kind of healthy narcissism is something I certainly recognize. And often with adult children of traumatizing narcissists, that's exactly what's, what's uh, missing for them is the ability to own and claim their own, you know, their own talents and, and strengths and power. Um, I work with a fellow who um, could be the guy who has it all, you know, the, the, the amazing education, the great looks, the athleticism, the intelligence, and the money. And uh, he's one of the least entitled persons I've ever met. Um, you know, basically because being raised by this very traumatizing narcissist, he was told, you know, uh, don't be... So grandiose, don't be so cocky, don't be, don't strut. And, um, you know, he was, he was diminished when he needed to simply be appreciated. And it's very hard for him now to own all of his strength and power which, and, and intelligence and talent. So, you know, yes, um, a traumatizing narcissist is not a healthy narcissist. It's a person who is trying to diminish someone else as a way of aggrandizing themselves. Well, I think that that's a, a fitting place to to end. I, I, I want to thank you for sharing uh, with us today and kind of allowing me to be a little narcissistic with you and do this podcast right. and so we can both be narcissistic for a moment and uh but but um but thanks a lot dan shaw for uh for talking about his about your book traumatic narcissism relational systems of subjugation this has been chris Bandini, thank you chris and this has been uh, new books in psychoanalysis